They're playing this a little bit longer than usual. A little bit, a little bit, and here we are. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome to Freightonomics this week. Prime week at that. Amazon Prime week, I think, is kind of a retail holiday uh, period for a lot of the United States, or it has been. Uh, and I don't know if we have any prelim preliminary results, but I think, you know, this is going to be a big week to kind of evaluate in the future for this state of the economy, right? Yeah, because <laughs> if you want to look at and gauge it to years before where, you know, people were still sitting on a little bit more savings, they had maybe some stimmy money uh, to spend on some of those Prime Day deals. And also, it's not just Amazon, it's just like they lead the pack because all other retailers kind of follow suit. You know, you look at like Best Buy, Target, you know, all these others start to like, hey, we're doing some Christmas in July specials as well. So we're all jumping on this on this train here. Christmas in July. Maybe that's a better title. So, uh, yeah, welcome to Freightonomics. I'm Zach Strickland, head of market intelligence here at Freightways with me, as always, chief economist Anthony Smith returns from his journeys this week. And yeah, so the, you know, the United States economy is heavily consumer spending driven whether that be on goods or on services, which has been kind of a, the case over the last year is the transition from goods to services, but also a little bit of deterioration in their spending uh, power overall, right? Yeah, yeah, especially, of course, we got some CPI numbers and we'll talk to that a little bit later on, but we're looking at their ability to spend. That's going to be, of course, leading on the labor market and how strong that labor market is. And of course, we've seen the latest numbers for the unemployment rate still under 4%, so great news. Job opening still over 9 million, 9.8 million, I believe was the latest number, but the quality of jobs aren't quite there as well. Yeah. And so if you start to see the savings rate really start to dwindle, you start to see credit card utilization really starting to get up there. We saw an increase in the latest month, but it was one of the smallest increase that we've seen in quite some time, kind of hinting towards that consumers may be hitting their limit. Yeah. And we had a pretty, I mean, in terms of the freight market dynamics, of course, very dependent on that consumer goods spending. Uh, it hasn't been very you know, probably uh, as bad as some might have expected in terms of overall demand rates for sure have been very bad. And for a lot of people out there, carriers and brokers for sure have had probably one of the worst experiences uh, in recent history, modern times for sure, in terms of a market shift. Um, but let's give a quick update to that extent. Anthony, if you want to count me in. Oh, that's right. We do the market in two, um, two, two minutes. How can I forget? <laughs> in three, two, one. Go. All right, let's start off with the OTVI. I took a few weeks off of leading with this one, but I think we're back to where uh, this is definitely going to be more relevant uh, as we're monitoring demand trends, as we're coming out of the first half of the year. OTVI, not a lot of movement, but coming out of July 4th, you can barely see that white line there for the current year sneaking out in front of that yellow line, which is that 2018 level. So we're right on par with 2018 tender volumes. However, Keep in mind, 2018 had about a 23% tender rejection rate at this time. So 23% of that OTVI was rejected tenders. Some portion of that, of course, fell to the spot market. But you can pretty much assume that this, the overall demand and carrier utilization is still elevated at this point in terms of overall freight volume coming through the United States versus 2018. Uh, looking forward a little bit, I think July, if you look at all those trend lines, July is a softer month. We come out of the first half of the year, cools off a little bit. So I think you can still expect that to be cooler. How much cooler is going to be the big question here over the next few weeks. So move to the next chart and look at the outbound tender rejection index. Capacity is still readily available. 
still at all time lows, especially for this time of year. We've never had this soft of a period of time and in the truckload market, uh, contract rates being a huge part of that as they're still elevated versus the spot rate, but also capacity is still very, very abundant. A little bit of an uptick there, but we're going into a period of time where this could be arguably the softest period of the year, even including that January period. If you look at historical trends and that barely visible purple line there, uh, 2019, August was actually the bottom of that market. Let's go to the next chart. Last but not least, contract versus spot. Here's the reason, one of the big reasons contra uh, rejection rates are so low to where things are a little bit more stable. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So Zach, I mean, Looking at so many different aspects, of course, one of the big things is that we still have tons of capacity. We, you know, talk about all the time, like, hey, you know what? We're still seeing some volumes that's not, you know, eroded, but the capacity is just so strong right now. Yeah, there's 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 just too much. Uh, it, it's an abundance. Uh, but, uh, you know, the last chart I pulled up there, the contract versus spot, if you look at that and when you think about contract rates being, you know, and again, this is aggregated, generalized information, comparing contract to spot. Not every lane is 20% higher, <laughs> uh, but in aggregate, according to our index, if you look back historically, a soft market environment in 2019, at this period in time, we we're about a 7% spread between contract and spot and rejection rates were a little bit higher. <laughs> so that was a soft market and carrier optionality was low. So this is an extremely soft environment and contract rates are still coming down out of the clouds from that pandemic era negotiation. We do think that that is going to continue to correct uh, here over the next few months because we've arguably only had one reset with contract rates, one big reset uh, in annualized bids. If we think about traditional bid season, which has not been really the case, uh, but annualized contracts coming due here in the next over the fall, I expect that VCRPM number to get a lot closer to that spot market number. Uh, another takeaway here, though, is that the spot rates, uh, excluding fuel surcharge, are showing some resilience. And, a, and a, they may have hit a bottom in May. I don't know if I feel confident in that for the rest <laughs> of the year, but it looks like, and again, this is summer. Like, I don't want to get too excited about upward trends in the summer. But if you look at the rejection rates, there's a lot more capacity then there is demand and spot rates are showing resilience. Yeah. And I think we're looking at, of course, at one of the big talking points after it was now this morning and I think throughout the industry for the last couple of weeks is the bottom of the market. And if we're at the bottom, if we're nearing the bottom, all these other talks. Right. But I think the big other piece of the conversation that needs to be had is what does recovery look like? Because so yeah. what if you're at the bottom? You can stay there for a while. You can moderate there for a while. And I don't really see too many catalysts that's going to be a jolt back up. That's going to be a sign of like a, those letters, like a V-shaped recovery or anything like that, you know, in the second half, unless we have, of course, one of those good old fashioned black swan events that, you know, seem to pop up from time to time. Right. So, I mean, I think you're arguably talking about what a demand spike would be. And uh, we do have some articles that I think address this very well this week. Uh, Greg Miller leading off our newsonomics section today with his article on U.S. containerized imports still outpacing pre-COVID levels. Now, Greg Miller, I'm a huge fan of Greg Miller and, and his pieces. Uh, however, if you are reading this art, that title, that's insinuating some optimism. Uh, yeah. You know, but, you know, I've, I've said this in the context of the trucking market. 
tender volumes are higher than 2019, 2018. What does that mean economically though? I mean, typically the economy grows at a pace of two to 3% every year, removing COVID. So at that logic, we technically should have seen some level of freight volume growth over the last four years now. <laughs> so just to state that we're above where we were four years ago, feels like a bit of a, it sounds like a big deal, but it actually sounds like not a big deal. Yeah. If you think about it. Yeah. And the other part is, of course, we have to think about, um, you know, the disconnect between the freight economy and the macro economy. Right. Sometimes they don't move on the same cycle. You can have a freight recession without a macro recession and vice versa. Um, but looking at the imports, um, one of the big concerns that I have, because if it's great to see you no know, import activity mm -hmm. and demand still there. But um, one of the big things that kind of we're talking about late last year, beginning of this year, is the value of the U.S. dollar. That's continued to come down throughout much of the last few months here. And a lower U.S. dollar, lower value, means that imports are going to be that much more expensive. And that's going to do some pretty impressive things to those deficits that are already not in the best of places because we export services. Every once in a while, we'll export some goods, you know. Not but, a big producer. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're looking at importing some of those goods that that value of the U.S. dollar could come to play some type of factor here. So let, let's pull up the IOTI here, the the Yachty, uh, as I call it. So this is a measure of bookings information, and Greg Miller cites this in his in his article here. Um, and and there is some level of optimism in my mind here, even though I know I just said 2019 is not a year to compare it to. Four years ago, volumes. When have you ever said, "Oh, this year is better than four years ago"? When <laughs> been like, "Oh, that's great news." <laughs> but I know we had COVID; that was a thing. But the uh, the trend line on the IOTI like looks pretty decent, and we talked about this a little last week while you were out gallivanting around. <laughs> um, uh, me and Thomas did. Uh, the trend line on this looks pretty optimistic. However, Henry Byers wrote an article saying that don't get over your skis, thinking that import volumes are signaling a big, massive economic recovery, or that the economy is even in a good, positive space. Uh, Hackett Associates was quoted in the, in the article, and he quotes several people in the, in this article here, getting some context, uh, that says consumer demand is stable and consumers have continued to spend while retailers and wholesalers have reduced their inventories, said Hackett Associates founder, Ben Hackett. The prospect of a recession is looking less likely he maintains. Um, so you see the IOTI here, it measures bookings for 20 foot equivalent units coming into the United States. Looks like it's trending higher at a bit of a, a peak. Uh, around what is traditional peak season. So that's not necessarily unexpected, but the fact that it has been trending higher over the year is a decent indicator. And he's now using, uh, you know, some of this data to suggest that maybe the economy isn't going to go into a recession now. What are your takes? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I hope Hackett is right. I mean, I, I don't want to go into a recession. That's not, you know, what the what the goal here is. Um, but it. it I don't know if I would say that consumer demand is stable just because there's so many variables at play here. When you're looking at, of course, student loan repayment, that's going to be a thing. Yeah. Looking at buy now, pay later, that's not really quite measured too well. That's a big thing. We look at record levels of uh, credit card debt being racked up. That's a whole nother thing as well. And so really this all comes back to the labor market because that's the big thing that's holding this all together. And the labor market itself is artificially inflated after coming out of this COVID high with 9.8 million openings, 
we don't have that many people. Explain explain the artificial uh, inflation part, because I think that's something that a lot of our audience and, and even myself, like I don't fully understand. I know that those numbers are not real yeah. <laughs> to an extent. And I think that's a hard thing for people to grasp is what do we trust in, the, in these figures that we can take away? I think just having worked <laughs> yeah. and understanding how load uh, job postings and, and things like that work, it's a very slow grinding process. You, you'll leave jobs up for months after you've been <laughs> We actually don't want them. <laughs> 100%. And of course, I'm no labor economist, so I'll put on my best labor <laughs> economist hats. My apologies for anyone out there that, that definitely dives deeply into this field. Uh, Aaron Terrazas over at, uh, I think, Glassdoor now. Congrats on that one. Um, <laughs> So we're looking at, I think, when we look at the the labor market, it's really been propped up by this, of course, COVID demand after there was this mass layoff and furloughs. And then they kind of quickly switched around after, you know, stuff started to really kind of fire off on the good side. People started rehiring, remote work, hybrid, all that other stuff. So then we saw a complete switch and we got the great resignation. Now there's this huge demand for labor in the economy. Now, throughout that point, there was a shift as well in the whole job demographics. Of course, participation rate went down. That's starting to recover back near pre-pandemic levels. We also saw a huge amount of women leave the workforce. That's now kind of slowly starting to come back to pre-pandemic levels, thankfully. And we also saw that uh, baby boomers also exited when they could, because why would you want to try to come back if you can retire? And so that was also a, a, a big drain on the overall labor market because we have this huge amount of knowledge in certain industries that are now gone. And so this is going to be a little bit of some friction, I believe, in some of the labor markets. But at the same time, you have all this demand that was really kind of spurred by core stimulus uh, checks that were put out, this overwhelming artificial demand that wasn't really there. And then we also got that in forms of inflation. And so that also happens when you start to see that there's so much money out here and not enough goods being produced. I think that also the, the definition, some people would say, not enough goods to satisfy. And now we're quality. seeing somewhat of a, the same thing with services. Yeah. Right. I mean, since we came out of COVID, everybody was locked up for two years. They refurbished their houses. Then they're like, I want to go see the world. Yeah. But, you know, exactly. it's kind of like what you did last week. Yeah. And, and let me here by myself. I am not better. I, I had <laughs> no idea that Charleston was so much more humid. Right oh, on the, the hottest I've ever been, Charleston, South Carolina. Hottest I've ever. The been. humidity was amazing. Drenches, drenches like right away. Sauna. Beautiful, but but I mean that's the <laughs> thing. Like everybody has gone out and now traveled, and they're spending money on stuff that, and they're putting on credit cards. Yeah, and I feel like there is a sense that there is a debt bubble. There's a bunch of debt bubbles showing up, yeah. and and not just in the consumer uh, situation, but also in. Uh, businesses, there's fin financing issues that are starting to show up. And when we talk about businesses going under, uh, it's an unfortunate process in an environment like we're in, but it happens. And when that happens is they then have to go through a liquidation process. And so if a lot of companies start going under quickly, they don't pay their bills. <laughs> right. Just like the consumer, the credit card debt gets eradicated. Now, some of that debt isn't true economic value, so I'm not super worried about it. But a lot of the business debt is. Yeah. It's investment and in, in infrastructure and things that they need. So when this, when businesses go under and they don't pay their debts, that's a big deal economically, right? It's a huge deal. And I mean, you're not only looking at some of that investment that you're talking about, but you're also looking at some of the... Uh, the spinoff. So you're hiring individuals. Those individuals buy stuff and now they can't buy those goods anymore. Now, potentially, they're going to be on initial jobless claims and they're going to be on government 
uh, assistance, things like that. That's going to be more government spending mm -hmm. and government aid. And great that we have these services here, but it's also going to go back into where we are in that whole inflationary cycle. We got the latest numbers for inflation showing that there was some easing, which is great news. But the downside here is that much of the volatility is going to be coming from those energy segments, and that's going to be a big area. So core inflation is still generally elevated. I think it came down 0.2%. And the latest uh, re report for year-over-year -year trends, I think it's right at 4.8%. So it's, it's moving in the right direction. But really overall, OPEC Plus could really start to trim some production. And I think oil and gas prices are really primed for a nice little jump. I got to use prime and yeah, I think it's primed for some increase as we get to the second half of the year. Yeah. I, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot of downside risk for the second half of the year, economically speaking, correct? Yeah. And I think right now, I mean, if, if the Fed can manufacture a soft landing, amazing, great. Yeah. But I think ultimately this almost kicking a burning tire a little bit further down the road, we're looking at all the other underlying trends. And like you mentioned earlier, with the job postings and things like that, I mean, some job opening stay just there for so long. I, I know, um, yeah. I've heard, so I have some friends. That Does the Fed recognize or the economists recognize there's noise in some of these data sets? I think so, but I think they also try to, I'm not, you know, in those FOMC meetings, but I think they also use it as a way to rationalize increasing interest yeah. rates because I think the Fed would love to increase interest rates as much as possible just because it gives them that much more of a tool to use. And any times of, if, of course, recession, decline or anything like that. So I think they can see that there's probably some noise, but they can also use that as a justification of like, hey, look what we can do now. Don't you want to be right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, no. I mean, I they're not off the track record over the last couple of years. Of course, inflation's not going to be happening. Inflation is transitory. Okay, we're going to have this thing beat. It's not going to be a big deal. Okay, maybe we're going to have to navigate a soft landing. Okay. And so, right. <laughs> yeah. There we go. So, there we go. Nice confidence builder, <laughs> Anthony. Thank you for that. So a company that doesn't have a lot of confidence in it currently, Yellow continues to hit headlines. Uh, this article, a waiver gives Yellow breathing room, but with strict requirements from lenders. Again, we're talking about the debt bubbles here. Uh, this is a company that is a consummate example of, uh, you know, an issue that is a looming, it's not just about yellow failing, but it's about the downstream uh, providers, not just the banks, but they're, you know, the people that they owe money to. Right. <laughs> uh, if yellow goes under, then therefore it trickles down to everyone else. They then start having cash flow issues and that, you know, this is what bu bubbles are. <laughs> right. They pop and it's very, uh, very big. So according to the 8K filing with the SEC, the amended and restated credit agreement between the LTR carrier and consortium of lenders did have a testing deadline for covenant compliance on June 30th that has now been delayed. So what this means in layman's terms is they have their credit card bill due <laughs> on June 30th and they're giving an, ex an extension <laughs> so they can negotiate with a labor union. And also there may be some contingencies. They might've given them a little bit of room in that borrowing base and the amount of money that they have access to that they can utilize this to restructure the company and, and stay on life support for a little bit longer. The big problem here I have, I get asked the question about yellow all the time and UPS is a separate issue, but they're connected in a way, but yellow itself has been on life support for a long time. Yeah. And it's a combination of union cost and management. <laughs> There's a lot of examples of union, uh, carriers that 
are doing just fine. Uh, but again, it's it, both parties have some fault. There are a reason they're not the full cause. Uh, but the problem here is that as Yellow extends this process of potentially going out, if they do eventually call it, um, as it appears that that's, I mean, the Teamsters Union's public messaging has almost guaranteed this in my mind because that's what happens is now their customers are like, I got to go find some other options, you know, my LTL. Well, these assets are locked up inside of a yellow. (laughs) They can't go anywhere. They're not going to sell them. (laughs) So as these customers go to other options, which there are not very many, (laughs) you've got a handful of national LTL carriers available. They don't have infrastructure set up to handle 30% more volume overnight. If yellow were to go under right away, those assets would be liquidated and they'd go out into the world and be utilized. Right now, those trucks are just moving empty, further deepening the cut into Yellow's wounds <laughs> and also keeping critical assets out of utilization in the United States. <laughs> right. So the longer this drags out, the worse it gets for people that are looking to source LTL capacity. <laughs> and, and it gets into a point where I think optically, what are, where does yellow go from here? What does success look like? Yeah. So how do they successfully turn this around? I mean, so that's that's where I kind of draw some, you know, curiosity around. Then also, do we see this really kind of being one of the last or the last, I would say, Teamster? There, that, in my mind, there's no hope for another unionized LTL carrier. Yeah. We've already seen evidence that this is, I mean, Sean O'Brien has basically made it clear that he's willing to sacrifice jobs, uh, or that's at least the public image. He may have just accepted the fact that yellow is uh, dead in the water and made a public scene. We talked about this, um, of shooting the guy on their deathbed, uh, to help leverage negotiation with UPS, which has financial strength. But that sends a horrible message to any potential future union members in the way that the optics of it are very, very poor. Um, and I don't think there's a lot of argument for unionized trucking labor anymore in the United States outside of regulation. <laughs> yeah. And I think it is kind of, you see a lot of companies, like I remember Amazon fighting against the unionization. And of course, I've, you know, I don't want to get into how hard and difficult it is to work in a warehouse and all that that goes into it. But after you see some of these stories of like, you know, how hard some of these negotiations can be, all that other stuff. I can see why some companies really fight back. I'm like, hey, let's not. It's about how specialized are you? If Mm -hmm. you have to commit a lot of time and resource into becoming very good at a job, at a role, unions make more sense in that role. If you are, you know, has a low barrier to entry, doesn't require a huge amount of education, not a lot of training, unions don't make any sense there Mm -hmm. because you have a very limited, like, it doesn't take a lot of, there's not that the labor forces in trucking and transportation are not skilled, but the time and energy required to enter that labor force is not like that of somebody that's designing spaceships and rocket ships. Uh, and they don't have unions because the market tends to value them appropriately, I think is the, is the end goal here. Yeah. And it kind of, since if we're looking at freight as a commodity, this mm-hmm. almost looks like how a cartel within a commodity operation would operate. Yeah. Know? So it, it, it does allow for reflowing business decisions in a sense. Yeah. And one last uh, story here before we we close out the show, but uh, monthly cast reports suggest the freight market bottom may be near 
um, defining the freight market bottom as we've had, you know, we've struggled to do here. What does the freight market bottom look like? There's a great chart in here. I want to show that really quick. Classic truckload cycle. There's some nuance here that I wanted to get into, but we don't have time to do that today. But certainly check this out. John Kingston covers it. Imports uh, fell by five point. I'm sorry. The uh, Basically, this is based on CAS. Uh, CAS's output. ACT Research jumps in here and starts talking about how we appear to be showing the signs of bottoming because uh, orders... Um, Class A production is on the decline. Cancellations are up. That's kind of the last thing to fall in the cycle bottoming uh, as they define it. And then, of course, what comes next? But early cycle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think we're still a little bit away from that, Anthony. I don't think, I think we've still got some some bottoming to do in terms of maybe staying on the floor a little bit longer. Yeah, and I think if we look at like the average length of a down market, mm -hmm. I don't know if we're there just yet, maybe... Was there like 20 something month maybe? And I, I don't like using historical average. Everything's different. Something like that? I don't know. Uh, especially after COVID. Everything's kind of everything's become different. Everything's different. <laughs> I don't I don't like historical trends. I pulled up a chart before that show you that history is really bad predictor. <laughs> Awful repeating it. Thanks guys so much for tuning in. Also shout out to Madison Finley over at Energy in the State. Great cool water.